Coming up today, we look at how social media platforms have responded to the death of Molly Russell and explain why Elon Musk is wrong about depopulation. You're listening to The Wired Podcast, your essential weekly guide to the future of tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Templeton, and joining me this week are Morgan Meeker. Hello. Natasha Bernal. Hello. And Matt Reynolds. Hello. This was the week when Mark Zuckerberg announced that legs are coming to the metaverse. Currently, avatars in Meta's Horizon virtual world float above the ground, but not for long. As well as legs, Zuckerberg also announced a 15... $100 headset and Metaverse integration with Microsoft Office. It was also the week when Germany's Ministry of Interior said it was investigating ties between the country's cybersecurity chief and Russia's security services. Europe is on high alert for threats to its critical infrastructure after gas pipelines and rail services have been mysteriously damaged in potential acts of sabotage. This was also the week when Elon Musk has said he cannot afford to continue to donate satellite internet to Ukraine if the US government will not pick up the bill. The request for funding for his Starlink system comes after Musk said that Ukraine should seek an end to the war by surrendering territory to Russia and committed to remaining neutral in the war. And it was finally the week when we found out that NASA's attempt to deflect an asteroid was successful. So the orbit of the 160-metre-wide dimorphous asteroid was changed by 32 minutes, which is quite a long time, actually, because the whole orbit is about 11 hours, I think. Dimorphous, fortunately, wasn't heading to Earth, but it's a good sign that if we do detect any asteroids heading in our direction, we should be able to whack them off course. Good news. I mean, the bad news, just to go back to Mark Zuckerberg's legs, is that after announcing the arrival of legs into the metaverse, which is apparently something we've all been waiting for, it actually turned out that the legs were fake, um, which is just tremendous. So this um, kind of glitzy PR exercise that Meta put together to announce the new things that were coming to um, Horizon's virtual world, um, it was actually all motion captured. So the, uh, the scene where Mark Zuckerberg is, ex- is excitedly jumping up and down in the metaverse on his meta legs, the legs were motion captured. So not real legs, not even fake legs, motion captured not legs. <laughs> not even meta real fake <laughs> not legs. Even, He's yeah, not got not a leg to stand real. on. This is a disaster, honestly. That whole project just seems to be completely built on sort of a house of cards, hot air scenario. Um, yeah, between that and the fact that this week they were saying that the headset that they've released will scan your eyeballs to see what kind of things you're looking at to target advertising. It all seems a bit... Not great advertisements for Metaverse, to be honest. Well, yes. Um, there's also the fact that the headset costs $1,500, has a two to three hour battery life, and the most compelling use case for it that was shown at Meta's big press event this week was that you can have a Zoom meeting in it. And you have no legs. No legs. And, during and you the have Zoom no legs. Meeting. The What's, legs are fake. Yeah. You're just floating. I've got legs right now, and we're doing a Zoom meeting kind of thing. Show us your leg. 
I will not. Um, <laughs> anywho, uh, if you want to hear lots more about what Meta announced this week, um, you can check out Wired's Gadget Lab podcast with Lauren Good and Stephen Levy, where they talk about all the stuff that Meta announced this week and are maybe a little bit more enthusiastic about it than us, although not much. All right, what did we learn this week other than Mark Zuckerberg's Meta legs aren't real? I will start with you, Morgan. So this week I learned that half of the world's gas lanterns are found in Berlin. So the western side of the city actually never got around to converting its 23,000 19th century gas lanterns to LED street lamps. But basically a new urgency has suddenly arrived with Europe's energy crisis, which has hit Germany especially hard because the country used to get more than half of its natural gas from Russia. So basically, now it gets none from Russia. Energy prices have dramatically shot up. Berlin is, dras- is kind of dramatically turning down the heat in its swimming pools and it's also trying to axe all these lanterns. But not everyone is happy about this. There's even a citizens group to try and preserve the lanterns. There's always a citizens group, isn't there? For anything. You could, you could, you could propose getting rid of the most horrible thing in the world and there would be a citizens group fighting to keep it for some... <laughs> The beauty of the citizens. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Matt Reynolds, what did you learn this week? I quite like the citizens group. I think the gas lamps sound quite... Maybe I'm naive, but I know maybe we could put some other kind of biofuel in them or something. Um, I learned a fact from over the border in France. So in 1920, uh, or every year from 1920, 90 French families were awarded a prize of two, no, 25... No, what's that? Uh, 25,000 francs. God, it's very difficult reading a number. The only requirement to win this prize was that it had to go to families with nine or more more children and it was all part of this big effort at the time to raise birth rates i'll be talking about that in my story later on and it also included bronze silver and gold medals for mothers of five eight or ten children and in fact french parents are still awarded these medals today although the requirements are now different i think it's four children and a bunch of kind of other requirements you get a medal in france for having lots of kids yes in France, you can apply for a medal. There's a, I'm not going to try and pronounce the French uh, <laughs> name, but you might be able to do it, James. You can apply for a medal if you fulfil... It's either have four children or bring a children up, a child up over di- under difficult circumstances, or there's a whole bunch of different things. I think it's called, like, the medal to honour the family. And, yeah, you can apply for it. Our first story this week contains references to self-harm that some listeners may find upsetting. We'll be talking about Molly Russell and the role that social media played in her tragic death. If you'd rather not listen, skip ahead about 15 minutes and we'll be talking about our second story. So if you live in the UK or if you've been following social media regulation over the last few years, her name will be familiar to you. Today we're talking about Molly Russell, a British schoolgirl who took her own life in an act of self-harm in 2017 after being bombarded with self-harm and suicide content from social media sites Pinterest and Instagram. Since then, her family has been campaigning to better protect children online and to make sure that what happened to Molly never happens to anyone else again. At the end of September, an inquest ruled on her official cause of death and for the first time linked it to the content that was being pushed at her by these algorithms. Morgan, you've been looking into this story and what it might mean for social media sites moving forward. Tell us more. Yeah, so this inquest arrived almost five years after Molly passed away and its official purpose was to determine the cause of her death and basically decide how much of a role social media platforms played in that. 
So mm-hmm. the inquest, it focused a lot on the content that Molly looked at on two social media platforms, Pinterest and Instagram, in the weeks and months before her death, especially how content about suicide and self-harm was fed to her by those platforms' recommendation systems. So one example cited in the inquest was in the two weeks before she died, Molly received an email from Pinterest which suggested to her, depression pins you may like, that's a quote, and the email included an image of a bloody razor. So basically, after reviewing a lot of this type of evidence, the senior coroner in charge of the investigation, Andrew Walker, concluded that it was not right to say that Molly died by suicide. Instead, he said she died from an act of self-harm while suffering from depression and the negative effects of online content. So that single sentence was really significant because it's the first time that the use of social media has been officially explicitly linked to a child's death. And also how the coroner reached that decision was quite unusual. So the inquest process forced both Instagram and Pinterest not only to submit evidence, but also to testify in the case. Pinterest and Meta executives were both dragged into the proceedings and made to answer to the Russell family lawyer. So the case was obviously very tragic, but it also created this quite rare opportunity to peer under the bonnet of two social media platforms implicated in the case and to almost compare their content moderation policies side by side. And by doing that, it became clear that the two platforms had really diverged in how they dealt with this kind of content since 2017 when Molly died. And I think that raises some really interesting questions about, I mean, if we want social media to be better how should it be better? And kind of what purpose do we want social media to serve, especially for young people? I mean, since since then, obviously, we've got to factor in this was 2017, when Molly died, and, you know, Pinterest, and, you know, Twitter, and, you know, Instagram, um, were obviously around and kicking TikTok wasn't as prevalent as it is now, neither was Snapchat. So it, when when you look at this the situation, both both these companies, as you said, were involved in discussions with MPs. They were testifying. They were trying to say how they'd improved their sites or were trying to improve their sites at the time to to make sure that this didn't happen again. They both pledged that they changed and they put forward more safeguarding measures for children. What exactly have they done? So there's been the small changes. So since 2017, Pinterest has turned off personalised recommendation emails and push notifications for underage users, while Instagram has turned off direct messaging for adults to children that don't follow them. So now often a lot of these changes are introduced pretty quietly because it kind of raises obvious questions like, wow, that's crazy. Why were random adults ever able to message children that they didn't know on Instagram? But there's also been kind of bigger, more sweeping changes. So Molly's death in 2017, it coincided with the fallout from the 2016 US presidential elections when a lot of platforms, including Pinterest, were implicated in spreading Russian propaganda. And so it's kind of around this time when we see Pinterest take a swerve in its approach to moderation. The platform suddenly becomes very hard line in the years after this and starts to say publicly that that's it. Some subjects just don't belong on Pinterest. We're not going to get into the nuances. We're just going to start blocking kind of whole sections of conversation. So self-harm content was one of these areas the platform said it would block. Right now, the company told me it blocks 25,000 self-harm related search terms. Vaccine is another area that Pinterest cracked down on. So Meta, however, has always been much more preoccupied with free speech. So although Meta did start prohibiting graphic images of self-harm and suicide after Molly's death, in 
it did that in 20, 2019, according to one person I spoke to, but it did not ban self-harm content completely. They just blocked search terms that promote or encourage self-harm. So it's quite an interesting difference. So Elizabeth Lagone, Head of Health and Wellbeing Policy at Meta, told the Molly Russell inquest that it is important to give people that voice if they're struggling with suicidal thoughts. So this comparison between Pinterest quite interventionist policies with Meta's more free speech focused attitude is quite interesting. I feel like when there are social media content scandals, there's often calls for more moderation, but suddenly we have two different models of what more moderation could look like. It's really, really interesting contrast between the two faced with the exact same problem. They decide to take hugely different approaches. One decides to sort of extract it as if it were a tumour and eliminate all that kind of content from its site. The other one says, well, actually, we will put in safeguards, but we'll allow it to continue. And one of the big problems with this was not just that the content was prolific on both of the sites. It was also that the company's own algorithms were promoting it. So the more people consumed that content, the more that it was pushed to them, which is which is hugely problematic. It, I, I do wonder, though, is, is either approach enough to address that and address the content problem? Um, it feels like there's still momentum for an online safety bill in the UK, which could set a really important precedent for social media companies around the world. Does it feel like this approach is enough or, or will there be a bill? So, I mean, even if you look at Pinterest's approach, which is like, we want to get rid of this type of content on our platform. It's important to say that it's really, really hard to entirely block a subject from any platform. So I spoke to the Russell's solicitor who had, she basically spent hours looking at the content that Molly saw in the six months before her death. She then re-entered the search terms Molly used to see if that content was still there in kind of the weeks before the inquest. So she said that Pinterest has made progress. Its efforts to shut down self-harm content had kind of worked. She said there was a lot less graphic content on the platform today. But obviously, there's always going to be workarounds. People create code words or start using less obvious hashtags. So it's kind of a, a moving situation. But on the momentum point, I think the inquest did add urgency to this online safety bill, the UK government's proposal to make the internet safer. And that's now expected to be brought back to UK Parliament before Christmas, obviously, depending on kind of what else is happening in the UK government. But child protection advocates are emphasising the fact that children like Molly are still being exposed to disturbing content online. And they're hoping that online safety bill will mitigate this by forcing platforms to carry out what's called risk assessments. So this means social media companies would have to look at the type of content they're hosting on their platforms, suggest what bad things might happen as a result of people looking at that content, and proactively create a plan for what to do about it. I mean, that would also give the media regulator Ofcom a role to weigh in on those plans and say whether they think it's sufficient or not. Another thing the bill should do is it should compel platforms to be more transparent. So Pinterest and Instagram both took part in Molly's inquest voluntarily. They weren't compelled by law to do that, but there were big differences in how cooperative they were, according to the Russell solicitor. So Pinterest provided material about Molly's activities on Pinterest in one go, including pins that she had saved, but also pins she clicked on and scrolled over. So that's quite important. Meta, however, never gave the Russell's solicitors that level of detail. And much of the information the company did share was heavily redacted. So, for example, the company disclosed in the six months before Molly's death, she's recommended 30 accounts with names that referred to sad or depressing themes. So that's just in the account names. Yet the actual names and handles of those accounts were 
were redacted. So Meta cited the account users' privacy uh, for doing that. So there is hope that the online harms bill would force companies to be a bit more cooperative. And this would especially be helpful for kind of grieving families who are trying to find out what happened to their loved ones. Yeah, this is this is a really um, interesting case, not, not just because of um, what these platforms have done, but because of what you mentioned of, of other people being in, in a similar situation. And I think we have to remember here that, you know, children are still accessing social media sites, they're still seeing content that is really, really disturbing. And, you know, perhaps not enough is being done to, to protect them from that. And, and it does feel like, you know, since even since 2017, the way that people use these sites, the language that they use to try to circumvent any efforts for content moderation means that it's very easy for them to evade, especially AI-powered uh, content moderation efforts, right? It's, it's easy for them to tweak a bit of their language, a few keywords, uh, for them to be able to carry on sharing this kind of content that then will, will reach vulnerable people. Um, d- does it feel like any of these social media companies, either of, of the ones that we're talking about or any of them, have a handle over that? Yes, yeah, so I think... People, there's always going to be workarounds. I mean, hashtags will always change and evolve or have little tweaks. But I think what child protection campaigners are really hoping the online safety bill would do is force companies to draw a line in the sand about what they will and won't tolerate, because that's quite difficult to get right now. So if they did that, that would mean outsiders will be able to easily uh, evaluate whether a platform has broken its own rules, will be able to understand, for example, did Meta leave up this post about self-harm because the company believes it's kind of giving a place for a young person to cry for help and express themselves? Or did they leave it up because it kind of slipped through the net and they hadn't thought about this area of policy and updated their search terms? Yeah, and I mean, not to end on a complete downer, but it kind of feels like there's a really easy way to measure whether they're succeeding or not. And it, unfortunately, it's like collectively, none of these social media companies are doing enough because more children appear to be being exposed to harmful content on social media sites, right? According to the latest figures, it looks like that hasn't changed. Yeah, so, so I mean, this is a constant problem. The number of children who say they're seeing disturbing content online is constantly ballooning. So almost two-thirds of British children aged 3 to 15 use social media. One-third of them have seen worrying or upsetting content in the past 12 months, according to an Ofcom study. And child protection campaigners say posts showing self-harm are still available on both Pinterest and Instagram, even if they are now harder to find than in 2017. So whether the new legislation will have an impact on that, we'll have to wait and see. But I mean, for a positive note to end on, I think this inquest did show a glimmer of what we could get if good legislation is passed and enforced. So we could see executives answering to the actual impacts of their platform's policy. And right now there's a feeling that that's still too rare. And that's one of the big reasons that this inquest made headlines, right? That the the coroner did come out and say that there was a link between what Molly Russell saw on social media and the acts of self-harm. And that's rare, right? And the social media companies were sort of forced to confront that. Um, so it will be interesting to see what happens with the UK online harms bill, um, purely because it, in isolation, that bill is controversial, right? People say that a, a lot of experts say that it's sort of technically illiterate, um, that it doesn't have a nuanced understanding of how online platforms or the internet works. You know, there have been numerous attempts over over the years to 
put backdoors into end-to-end -end encryption services, which have been put, pushed hard back against by technologists. So it's it's understandable that people get very, very, um, very, very charged by the emotional stakes here. But when the policies start being put in place, the technical things that they call for are often seemingly unworkable. So it's a, it's a really, really hard needle to thread, right? Yeah, and I think that's, I mean, the online safety bill, one of the major criticisms is that it is so broad and it covers so many issues. But I think if you take kind of concerns about child safety in isolation, this this Molly Russell inquest at least illustrates the problems that child protection campaigners want to be solved and how they do that is kind of the unanswered part of that puzzle. But I mean, it really shows that that there is a problem here and and just being able to compel executives to get up in front of an inquest in front of and and to share kind of crucial details about how their platforms work is is really important and really kind of helps kind of open their black boxes which i which i think is 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 kind of what people have been clamoring for basically yeah and you mentioned child protection groups but just to add maybe as a final point this is something that we all want, right? We want children to be safe online. We want them to be able to freely use the internet and to explore things in an environment that is safe, not necessarily controlled, but that is safe. And, and right now, platforms are not doing what they need to do. We as a society are not doing what we need to do to make sure that young people can access the internet and not end up in situations that they shouldn't be in it's a really really complicated issue and um, we'll include a link to morgan's full story in the show notes and if you want to get in touch with the show it's podcast at wired.co.uk elon musk was in the news this week for once again all the wrong reasons we're not going to talk about that but matt this week you've been looking at something that musk has mentioned quite a bit over the years he's really concerned that there might be a collapse in the human population how come that's right, he is. So this is something that has clearly been playing on Musk's mind for quite a while. He basically thinks not just that declining populations are not just something to worry about, but are the biggest risk facing humanity, which is a pretty big claim. So I wanted to look into it to see really if it stood up. Just give you a sense of, you know, what Musk's been saying around this. So at a conference with uh, Jack Ma back in August 2019, a conference in China, he said, assuming there is a benevolent future with AI, I think that the biggest problem the world will face in 20 years is population collapse. So population collapse, pretty big, big word there. Population collapse due to birth rates is a much bigger risk to civilization than global warming. He said a couple of months ago, he tweeted, mark these words. So Musk has joked that he's doing his bit by having 10 children. And he's, I think he's kind of encouraged other celebrities and other people like, look, I'm having loads of children. I'm, I'm doing what I can. But he's actually really serious about this on a, on a global level. And he points to places like South Korea, which is often... Um, used as this example of a place where populations are projected to decline quite rapidly. And that, that's true. The population of South Korea is currently just over 50 million. But because of really quite low birth rates, it's projected to fall to about 30 million in 2050. And Musk's warning is that, look, this will play out across the world really rapidly. In fact, you know, he talks about this 20-year horizon until eventually no more people. We'll get into this in, in a bit. But the speed at which 
the world's population can balloon and potentially collapse is is kind of surprising right when we look back at how quickly the world went from 1 billion people to 2 billion people etc etc so this is what musk says and elon musk says a lot of things but what do we actually know about where populations are headed in the future based on our best modeling yeah exactly and i think i, I wanted to start there because Part of what Musk is saying is like, it's a big problem now. He talks about this 20-year horizon. So I think it's reasonable to say, okay, what will the world be like in 20 years? And what will it be like, say, within the next 80 years? This quite close horizon that we can project fairly accurately. So the the main estimate is this uh, UN population projection. And luckily, they did an updated one in 2022. So we have really recent figures. And their estimate is that the world population will peak in the 2080s at around 10.4 billion people. So we're just under 8 billion at the moment. I think we're about 7.8, 7.9. So peak in the 2080s at 10.4 billion, and then kind of stay there or maybe decline slightly up to 2001. 100. This is kind of a similar trend for other projections, right? Other people disagree slightly. So there's another group um, in Vienna, it's called the IIASA, uh, or YASA, people call it. Um, And they say that the world population probably peak at 9.4 billion in 2070, and will fall to 9 billion by the end of the century. So similar idea, right? You know, it peaks kind of in the second half of the 21st century. And then by the end of the 21st century, it's declining. Now, the most pessimistic projections that are out there and and that these are kind of controversial but generally you know people think this is probably the very pessimistic end of the scale it's from a group called the institute for health metrics and evaluation at the university of washington and they suggest that population will peak around 9.7 billion in 2064 so an earlier lower peak essentially than the un at least um, and then decline to 8.8 billion by 2100 now as i just suggested these in essence, all tell us a similar thing. If you're thinking about population right now and in the next 20 years, the story is it's rising. It's rising pretty rapidly. I mean, that rise is getting, um, you know, that growth rate is slowing, but it's still rising, rising pretty quickly. And it's going to keep rising until at least the mid 21st century. And then it'll either level off or decline slightly towards 2100. So that's what our best current projections tell us. And if you're Elon Musk, you take those predictions and you extrapolate way into the future and you realise that eventually, if a number keeps going down, it will reach zero and there will be no more humans. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's actually the, it's the weird thing about populations, that if populations keep growing, uh, well, every, there's like a trillion, 10 trillion people on Earth, like all the atoms become humans. You know, populations cannot keep exponentially growing. But you're right to say the opposite. If populations fall year on year, well, they eventually will fall to zero. That's exactly how exponential decline works as well. And some countries have actually projected this, right? Countries where birth rates are low and they're thinking about this. So South Korea has done this. But the most famous example is Japan. I think in 2006, the kind of uh, Japanese population department or their kind of health and population department did a projection projecting birth rates into the year 3000 and beyond. And this is from a starting point where there's around 125 million people in Japan. It was actually a bit fewer because it's kind of earlier, but that's the population today. What they do is if you project these birth rates into the future, you find that by 2100, there's 50 million people in Japan. By 2200, it'll be around 10 million people in Japan. And by the year 3000, there's just 62 
people in Japan, which is really not that many people in Japan. And this is kind of assuming that there's no migration and that life expectancy and, and birth rates kind of stay as you expect them. I asked a demographer, a guy called Samir KC at, at that Vienna Institute I mentioned, to run a similar analysis for the world. Because after all, Musk is worried about global population collapse, right? He's worried about this fear that um, the whole world will go the way of South Korea. Um, and I just have to kind of clarify, this is all kind of hinged on this kind of quite specific number, which is called um, total fertility rate. And this is basically the number of children born to each woman. And it's actually really simple. If on average, each woman has below 2.1 children, then on the whole, populations will decline over time. That's whether you're looking within a country or you're looking uh, within you know the globe. If you've got higher than 2.1, then populations will rise. And so what the UN projects is that by 2100, this total global fertility rate will be about 1.84. So that's going to suggest a declining global population. And what happens if you extrapolate that into the really distant future is that you get this population peak, as I mentioned, of 10.4 billion around uh, 2100. That drops to just under 2 billion by 2500. And then if we go all the way to the year 3000, we've got around 227 million people on the planet. So what's that? That's like the population of Brazil or two thirds of the population of America, something like that. Which is, you know, quite a dramatic fall, but also predicting things to the year 3000 is, I imagine, a bit shaky. So in some ways, Musk is right to be worried, but also the predicting that's going on here is super shaky. Yeah, exactly. And we'll talk in a second about how it's kind of weird to make these those really long-term predictions at this, this very particular point in hum, humans' history. But if we even just step back a second and think about, okay, we're in the year 2022, worrying about a decline, not even to zero, but a decline by the year 3000. That's like pretty hard to wrap your head around um you know we're talking about timescales of millennia imagine someone in the year uh 1000 so this is before the norman invasion uh things are probably pretty bad in the uk i don't know uk didn't obviously exist then it's anglo-saxons just doing their kind of anglo-saxon stuff in their wooden huts or you know whatever's going on and they're like you know i'm really worried about the millennium bug but bug because there's going to be this thing called computers and then they're going to break in the year 2000 everyone's like you know that is a priority we should be thinking about right now i think like you really need to think on those type of timescales to really realize how odd it is to worry about human population in the year 3000 and I mentioned France, like right at the beginning of the show. And, and the reason was, is that in France, you actually had a really similar conversation in the year 1900. Um, and for the, some of the decades afterwards, France's population had been around 40 million for a really long amount of time. It's France's population, its birth rate, so, sorry, they declined um, earlier than almost anywhere else in the world. And people were saying, what's going on? Like this country is broken. Like people aren't having enough babies. Our population is not growing. Whereas in Italy, it's really shooting up. In Germany, it's really shooting up. And that's why you had all of these policies, like I mentioned, about rewarding families that had lots of babies. And there's you know, all kinds of other stuff around um, you know, how to encourage people to have more babies. You know, what happened is that none of those policies had an effect. 
obviously the Second World War happened. And then right after that, there's this huge population boom in France. And what happened is the population went from around 40 million to 60 million, I think probably by the by the mid 80s or so. But no one could have predicted that. And I think if you think about this over an even longer time span, just think about all the things that might happen in that time span, huge increases in life expectancy, um, global wars, maybe even like a nuclear war, new pandemics that could bring the population down, but then maybe changes in how we have babies or changes in family preferences that could really, um, you know, bring the population up again. And so I think when you're talking about these super long projections, we can't just look at today's numbers or the numbers 70 years from now and say, that's destiny, they're just going to carry on. We really have to be open to the idea that, well, things might change in the next thousand years, like they changed in the last thousand years. Something that people often criticise tech billionaires, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos in particular, is that rather than focusing on solving very, very urgent problems right now, they like to kind of talk about these big, almost sci-fi things like, oh, we need to set up a colony on Mars, or we need to be worried about population collapse, which is all very well and good. And right at the start, you mentioned that Musk had this interview with, or this conversation with Jack Ma in, in China, where he said, well, if we end up with a benevolent AI, which is, you know, a, a huge leap in just a couple of words, the idea that AI would form sort of a central part of a future society. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's important now, but this idea that there would be robots walking around doing all of our dirty work, you know, he's making some huge leaps here, as well as predicting into the year 3000. So leaving all of that aside, is it weird that in a small way, the global population will probably start to fall? Shouldn't it just keep on? I mean, I know it's not going to keep on going up forever, but... It seems weird that it's going to plateau so soon and start falling so soon. Yeah, I, I think that intuitively makes sense, right? You think populations are growing now is a good thing. If we can give people good qualities of life, why not have more people and carry on the trend that's been going on? It's, it's almost the same with like um, GDP or something like that. You're like, but it kind of should go upwards, right? You know, that's the direction you hope that trends go in. But when it comes to population, I think that we need to remember that actually the last 100 years and even more specifically, the last like 80 years are actually really quite strange in terms of long term human history. I mean, not forgetting, like you said, Musk, Bezos, they love to think in these long terms. Sometimes it's really beneficial to think backwards in, in long terms as well. So you think about the period, say, you know, before, you know, from the advent of agriculture, like 10,000 um, BCE to around just before the Industrial Revolution, so the year 1700 um, CE, the world's population, it barely grew at all. Well, it grew very slowly. It did grow, but it grew at about 0.04% per year. And in fact, at some point in our prehistory, maybe like, um, I think 70,000 years ago or tens of thousands of years ago, we think the human population might have only been a, a few thousand people. So this idea of boom and busts in population for thousands and thousands of years was just a reality. So I said population grew at 0.04% annually, but it didn't grow steadily. You'd have times when population grew 200 years in a row, and then population declined for the next 100 years. So you'd have this sense that on the whole, things went up very slightly, but that wasn't really like kind of a, a given trajectory. You just knew maybe there was a pandemic around the corner, maybe there was a bad harvest around the corner, and everything would be undone. What 
really changed that was in the 19th century, you had this, um, you know, this kind of, you know, the birth of germ theory. And what happened is that people just started living much longer lives and many more children started surviving to adulthood. And what that meant is that you had this huge increase in the world's population because people were having lots of babies, but those babies were living longer and more of them were living. And so what you saw after, you know, tens of thousands of years of extremely slow population growth, um, you saw that from 1803 to 1927, so that's 124 years, the population went from 1 billion to 2 billion. To add the next billion, only took 33 years. And then to add the next billion, only took 15 years. And then after that, it took 12 years. So you had this huge increase in um, population growth. I think population growth essentially peaked in about 1963 at 2.2% a year. And that has kind of dictated the modern world we live in because there's this kind of phenomenon where you, if you add lots of young people to the population, uh, you have lots of people of working age, relatively fewer people of old age because on the whole, um, basically birth rates were kind of uh, declining slower than life expectancy was growing. So you have all these young people, it adds loads of value to your economy. And you saw this in countries like Singapore and Hong Kong, uh, Ireland as well in the second half of the 20th century. And people, demographers call this like the demographic dividend, right? So it kind of supercharges economies for a while. But eventually what has to happen and that's what's happened in Japan and South Korea and certainly in Western Europe as well, is the situation comes to an end and we come back to the situation where populations are no longer rising. So it's almost like we've come full circle and now we're in a, a stagnant or falling situation. And then you end up with all those people of working age are suddenly of old age and the people coming up behind them, there are less of them, right? So there are less people of working age, loads more people of pensionable age and all of a sudden you've got to prop up all the old people and you don't have enough working people to do it, which is something that's happening in, in China or that will happen in China, which is one of the reasons that they got rid of the, well, it's not even controversial, the um, frankly brutal one-child policy. So you spoke to some demographers that argue that a world with a lower birth rate might actually be quite, I'm going to use air quotes, but you can't see them because this is a podcast, nice. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think I'm kind of convinced by this argument. As you mentioned, James, you have this situation where you have this kind of hangover where, you know, <laughs> you know, it sounds a bit mean, but you kind of, relatively speaking, have older people make up too much of a share of the population. But if fertility rates stay constant, you, you end up balancing that out, right? You get fewer older people simply because there were fewer younger people to begin with. So what is difficult are like moments of transition. If you enter a, a time where birth rates are stable, that should mean that actually you have a slightly more kind of stable society. We don't have like a such an acute problem. And really, some of the demographers I, I spoke to, especially a guy called um, Vegard Skerbeck, who's a Norwegian demographer, said that we can really cope with fertility levels that are at least slightly below replacement levels, perhaps quite a bit below replacement levels. And he kind of pointed out that, like, you know, we can do more today with fewer workers than at any other time in history. So one example is, like, if you look at the US workforce working in agriculture, it's dropped massively over the past century. But productivity, per worker has never been higher. We make more food with fewer people than at any time in history. And he basically says, you know, with the right policies to redistribute wealth, falling populations could actually be a good thing because you can spread those resources, um, you know, among more people rather than a bad thing. And 
we also should say that, like, you know, as I said, you know, right at the beginning, in the near term, the story is like the opposite, right? Global populations are growing. And although populations in Europe and Southeast Asia uh, are places, you know, they'll peak first and they'll decline first, population in Africa are growing massively. So almost all this increase um, up till 2050 is going to happen in sub-Saharan Africa. So that population will almost double from 1.2 billion today to just under 2.1 billion in 2050. And Musk grew up in a world where, you know, the scientific and technological innovation happened in Singapore or, or Korea or America or, you know, Germany. We have to get way more comfortable with the fact that innovation is going to come from, you know, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Nigeria, or Tanzania or Ethiopia. And that in a world that is more connected than it has been before, hopefully those innovations will spread you know, between c- countries much quicker. So you actually benefit from rising populations in other parts of the country, um, in other parts of the world. But it does mean we have to get you know, comfortable with a world that looks really different. And I think that could be a really exciting thing, right? Right. But countries, I mean, you, you mentioned that this rise and fall of populations isn't going to be evenly distributed across countries. We've got nations like um, South Korea and Japan where they're falling off a cliff and sub-Saharan African nations where they're shooting up into the sky. But countries with falling birth rates are, are still trying to knock the birth rates back in the right, the, quote unquote, the right direction, right? So they're providing cash bonuses. If you're France, you're still giving out medals. Um, you know, there's money available for, peop- uh, for families that have second or third children. Um, increasing access to IVF, proposing rent cuts for larger families. There are policies in place that are still trying to encourage people to have more children. So should these be a priority? If, if we know that there are parts of the world where population growth is still going to continue to happen at a really rapid rate, rapid rate, do we need it to happen everywhere rapidly still? Yeah, I, I think that's such a key question. It's actually, yeah, it's interesting to mention France, because France has the highest birth rate in, in Europe, in fact, still. Um, so it, maybe it could be seen as like a success. But as I said, it's actually kind of related to almost completely different things. I think that the answer really is, is that like, if your aim is to increase the population, you're probably on a losing, uh, fighting a losing battle there. It's pretty unlikely that, you know, these so-called pronatalist policies can completely turn the tide of decreasing populations. Historically, there have been periods where birth rates have gone up again. I think it happened in Egypt and Iran. But I don't think it's ever really happened that they've dipped below replacement and then dipped above replacement level again. That seemed quite unusual. Although, obviously, immigration can change that. If you have more liberal immigration policies, you um, you don't need to have so kind of pronatalist policies. I, the dem- demographers I spoke to said that a better way to think about it is you should enable people to live lives that satisfy their um, children preferences. So if someone wants five children, but can't have five children and only has one children, one children, one child, that's a bad situation, right? Just as having someone that wants zero children, forcing them to have one child, well, that's a bad policy as well. So government should be looking for policies that enable everyone to live better lives, no matter what their target is and you know we see you know examples of like why being aggressively pronatalist just doesn't seem to really work i mentioned france before and stuff changed way out of the government's control but since like the mid 90s the japanese government has had a whole bunch of policies to try and increase family sizes but its total fertility rate has barely shifted at all it's about 1.3 children uh, per women but then in other parts of the world 
people have fewer babies than they intend to. So typically, and this is certainly true in European countries, if you ask people, how many babies would you like to have? You know, you ask someone aged 16, how many babies would you like to have? And 20 years later or 30 years later, you say, how many babies did you have? Usually that second number is lower than the first. So there are clearly things that limit birth, you know, or like um, it limits the ability of people to reach their family preferences. And actually there are like quite simple things you can do to improve that that are good for everyone. So there's some evidence that societies with stronger social welfare nets and greater gender equality have higher birth rates. And that might explain why Nordic women tend to have more babies on average than people in Southern Europe. Southern Europe has pretty bad um, or pretty low total fertility rates. And expensive housing is another reason people limit their family size. They want to have babies, but they just can't afford to move into a bigger house. So again, you know, policies that such as building lots of houses. They, they benefit both the childless people and people that want to have more babies. So I think like rather than having this like more babies are good or, or fewer babies are good, we maybe want to think about encouraging policies that like let people satisfy their um, child preferences. And where you end up is a situation where, huh, that's a society that's better for childless people. It's also better for people that want to have lots of children or want to have however many numbers of children. But it's certainly not a society necessarily where you just throw money at people in order to get them to have babies, because the evidence is that it doesn't really shift the dial. One thing you mentioned very briefly was immigration, right? Um, Countries like Japan have quite strict immigration policies. So one way that Japan might look to increase its population and to get more money moving around the economy and to mix things up a bit might be to loosen some of those rules around immigration. And, to, you know, countries like the United States and Canada have benefited hugely, United States more historically so, from very, very open immigration policies. If you want loads of people to come and work in your country and contribute to the economy, just make it easier to immigrate there, right? So if we're talking about a population um, growth explosion in sub-Saharan Africa, then countries that want to benefit from all those smart new people coming onto planet Earth, then just open up immigration policies and allow them to come and contribute to your economy, even if people, as you were saying, Matt, in your country have decided that, you know, one or two kids is is enough for me. So it's um, it, it's it's a dumb point for Elon Musk to make, but it's sort of a, an interesting spark for a discussion about all kinds of interesting um, demographic uh, levers and um, switches that we might pull and fiddle around with. Podcast at wire.co.uk if you want to get in touch with the show about anything that we talked about this week or if you're going back through the archives, you can get in touch with us as well. Um, there was a couple of emails in the podcast inbox this week, but we're going to wait for Matt Burgess to get back to address those because they're about stories that he talked about. He'll be back next week, I think. Thanks very much for listening. As ever, we'll be back again same time next week. Have a good one. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.